In this episode of Info Product Mastery, I sit down with Austin Church, and we discuss the path from transitioning from freelancer to content creator. This is Info Product Mastery, episode 26. Welcome to Info Product Mastery, the podcast that helps developers make life-changing money by building and selling online courses. I'm your host, Adrian Rosebrock. And today, we have Austin Church on the show. Austin is a freelance writer and brand consultant who teaches creators and freelancers how to make more money. I came across Austin's work through two avenues. The first was a mutual connection of ours, Dr. Sherry Walling, and the second through creative expert Jay Close, who was tweeting about Austin's work and his acceptance into the Creative Companion Club. From there, I read up on Austin's story because it just sounded so interesting started by getting laid off in 2009 during the great financial crisis to building and then later selling his portfolio of over 30 mobile apps. And now with his business, FreelanceCake.com, he helps online creators and entrepreneurs build brands. I loved Austin's story. And quite frankly, I think he could teach me a lot about brand building. So I thought I would reach out to him. Austin graciously accepted. And hey, here we are today. So how are you doing today, Austin? Doing great. I'm thoroughly caffeinated and already have enjoyed our conversation. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. Now, you've had this amazing history. Can you walk us through what it was like getting laid off, to creating this portfolio of mobile apps, and now running Freelance Cake? It's been a ride. It's been <laughs> an adventure. I would never have guessed that my career trajectory would look like this if you had taken me aside during grad school and said, hey, you're not going to become a college English professor after all. You're going to go on this path instead. At the same time, I was having breakfast with my best friend recently and he was saying, oh yeah, you know, your path makes so much sense to me. And I'm like, well, I'm glad that makes one of us, right? <laughs> because it's just been, you know, winding kind of meandering, but always just focused on creativity. And then whether I knew it or not at the time, looking for more passive or leveraged business models. That makes a lot of sense. We were, we were talking a bit off, offline about grad school and what it was like to go through grad school and then ultimately decide not to stick around in, in academia. And that could be a tough decision to make when you've spent five, six, seven years through undergrad and grad school, spending money, a ton of time, a ton of effort doing your research, and then uh, maybe walk away from completely or graduate with your degree and say, hey, uh, you know what? This really isn't for me. I mean, it sounds like you you went through experience like that. I did. I did well in grad school. I was, I mean, the way I learn fit pretty well within a traditional scholastic environment or whatever you want to call it. And I taught high school for a year, you know, went back, taught while I was in grad school. I, I thought that's what my path would be. It's funny now, I guess I've come full circle because I do a lot of teaching now. And if we're going to talk about info products, you're like, well, it's the transfer of knowledge, right? But I thought that I was going to be in that formal academic environment. And then I wasn't but a year into grad school and just had a, a bit of a crisis because I thought, I don't want to do this. I, I feel a little bit suffocated by 
the trappings of academia, which I, I didn't know any better going into the program. I thought, oh, you know, I could love this. Well, I didn't. And I didn't love grading first-year composition essays. My degree was a master's, you know, an MA in creative writing with a focus in poetry. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I spent the majority of my time on lesson plans and then grading. So I wasn't spending the majority of my time on the things, the loves that had taken me there, which were reading, writing, and teaching. That was the small percentage of my time. So uh, it became clear to me that this was not my path. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. My my dad had a similar path. He loved teaching when he was in grad school, and he thought for years that he was going to be a teacher. And he did a little bit of a teaching immediately after he graduated with his PhD. And he quickly became bored of it. He's like, I like to teach, but I hate the administration stuff, the stuff that takes me away from my my students and educating them. The the meetings, the politics, the drama. He's like, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't do it. He actually That was me. He, yeah. He went into industry for thirty years and then eventually came back to teach at a community college only to have the same thing happen again. <laughs> oh, and no. like, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was at a community college. So you would you would hope it would be a little a little nicer, a little more simplistic. Nope. Same same level of drama. <laughs> yes. I think some people have a higher tolerance for that. I mean in Atomic Habits, James Clear talks about how mastery at something requires a high tolerance for boredom. And so maybe even just beyond distaste, it was like I got bored with even like with critical writing. Like I wanted to create poems and stories and novels and not write about other people's. So it was good when I left. I did finish my degree, but now looking back, I think I was doomed to be an entrepreneur. I just, I hadn't seen the telltale signs yet. Right. I think for me personally, I wonder if you, if this relates to you, but I find that approximately every seven-ish years, my interests change dramatically. Mm-hmm. And no matter what I was doing before, no matter how happy it made me, I start looking for, for something different. So for the past eight years, I ran PyImage Search, where I created tons of content on computer vision, machine learning, deep learning, that type of stuff. And then the business was acquired last year. And since the acquisition, I've had zero interest in computer <laughs> vision. I have not read any updated papers on computer vision. I have not written a... I, actually, that's true. I wrote one, like one simple project, coded up a simple project using OpenCV, a popular computer vision library. But all of my time now, it's been either spent doing this podcast, getting to know the amazing content creators out there, or I've developed this new passion for quant and algo trading, which is completely different from computer vision, still in, still in the computer science space. But I have found that I enjoy that a lot more. And mm. it's, it's a kind of a weird thing to say because computer vision isn't necessarily like a solved problem. We have not done computer vision. It is not a solved problem that there's no further work to be done. We are We're Mm -hmm. only like 5% into that field, right? But to me personally, I felt like I beat that part of my life. Like I beat that game. And like now it's done. It's put it back in the cabinet. The console's wrapped up and I'm never going to touch it again. Like it's like I I beat that part of my life and I have no interest in going back to that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that's a danger potentially for what I heard Darren Rouse call 
multi-passionate people. Like I have this insatiable curiosity and it can fan out fairly widely. And yet what I know about entrepreneurship is that you need to keep on double clicking on something specific until you find product market fit, until you figure out, you know, will people pay for this? If so, what will they pay? And if so, is that worth the effort I put in? And can I achieve scale? Like just some of the, you know, perennial graduated problems that entrepreneurs face, it takes time. And if you're constantly trying to rein in your own curiosity or your varying passions, that's just, you're, you're kind of at odds with yourself. And that's something mm-hmm. that even when I look back over the last 13 years of entrepreneurship, there were many times where I lost interest in something right as it was picking up momentum. And so there's that constant dance of, oh no, my interest is slipping or waning. And even like one of the reasons I sold the app portfolio that you mentioned was I I had lost interest in it. And now I do think that whole ecosystem is changing, especially for independent app developers. But yeah, there is that struggle like, hey, I need to go deeper, but this part of me wants to go wider. Ah, like what should I do? So... I joke that I've had a lot of modest successes and those modest successes, some of them I know could have been bigger if someone else had perhaps less distraction prone, (laughs) curiosity prone, someone else maybe could have done more with them because they would have had that tenacity to go deeper. I think that curiosity is really important though. I mean, wasn't it Nassim Taleb in Anti-Fragile, he was talking about the concept of, of that curiosity. That's, that, that's actually what makes you anti-fragile because mm-hmm. you're willing to place small bets in a very large number of areas. And mm-hmm. most of the time, those bets don't return anything, but they have a very small loss because you didn't invest that much. But mm-hmm. all you need is just one of those to take off. I think that's personally why I've, I've been successful is because I, I just dabble in like a bunch of areas. And Mm -hmm. if I don't succeed in one of them, that's fine. I really didn't lose much time or much money. I'll go find something else to do. But when I hit on something that works, then you have a choice. You can be like, do I keep going? Do I double down and double down and double down and try and grow this thing into a behemoth, which is is what I did for Pie Search? Or do I just grow a little bit, take my slice of the pie and move on to the next one? And I I don't think either one is right. They're just Mm -hmm. two different paths you can take. I agree. And I think because entrepreneurship is so intertwined with personal development, you have to constantly check in with yourself and ask, do I still want to be doing this? And if the answer is no, you can take a look at some of those bets that you've made and just, I won't even say cut your losses, but like cut your wins. Like some of them may be picking up steam and you may still decide, I just don't care. I don't want to anymore. And that's your prerogative as an entrepreneur. That said, sometimes I have to check myself and say, no, actually, if I do stick with this for another however many years, I believe I'm now, I have achieved enough traction. I've gotten enough momentum that if I were to keep double clicking on this and to go deeper, three more years of tenacity, 
would be highly rewarded, right? And one other thing comes to mind very quickly, guy named Alex Ramozzi, he his site is acquisition.com. Anyway, he was relaying this conversation that he had with a friend who more or less said, I don't look to my business for entertainment. I can get my entertainment elsewhere. And I think that's an important layer to consider too, is if you're constantly looking to your business ventures for your creative or intellectual stimulation, that may cause you to give up a little bit too soon on certain ideas or certain projects. And so, again, it's just that constant process of self-analysis to be like, am I getting in the way of a, a, a venture that really wants to succeed? You know, and sure. maybe then you like hire people to replace you, like hand it off to someone who can stay really excited about it. Yep, exactly. Tell us about your your latest venture. What exactly is Freelance Kick? So I had a bit of a crisis back in 2015 when I was doing the tech startup thing. I had invested in and co-founded a tech startup, which was called Close Up FM, ticketing, touring, and communication software for bands. And all of my time was being consumed by the startup. And yet I was still needing to make money with freelancing and consulting on the side. And I was just looking at all of my time commitments and having a crisis, having a freak out. My family had been debt free for years. And suddenly we have a balance on this credit card and we don't have enough money in our checking account. And so all of this just kind of converged, of course while we were on vacation at the beach, which is like the worst time to like do some deep problem solving, right? And that was sort of the genesis of freelance cake because I started thinking I have to like break the relationship or weaken the relationship between time and money. I have so little time. I need to make a lot more money than I have been making for my family. How is that going to work? And I started binge listening on vacation. So maybe it was like surreptitiously, like on the sly, I'm like still doing some problem solving. But I started listening to this podcast from a guy named Brennan Dunn, who has since become a friend of mine. It's called the Double Your Freelancing Podcast. And he started talking about something called project roadmapping. Or another way to think about it is, how do you sell strategy as a standalone offer? And I thought, well, maybe, maybe that's it. Like, Maybe that is a partial solution for me. But that began this journey of looking around and asking the question, what do six-figure freelancers think and do differently? And I started to do some pattern matching and notice similarities that almost all of them had specialized. Almost all of them had dramatically pruned back their offerings so that they were only doing a handful of things for a specific niche, sometimes a niche within a niche, right? Not just SaaS companies, but like bootstrapped early stage SaaS companies, right? And so I just noticed a lot of similarities with their positioning, with their packaging, with their pricing. They were all on the premium end of the spectrum pipeline marketing had become a really important part of their 
overall mix. They didn't treat it as an afterthought. They put it front and center. So again, I'm pattern matching and I just start doing all these experiments. I had crossed six figures before, but I would say that I did it the wrong way where I was selling anything people would buy. And really the only way for me to make more money was to feed more of my personal time inventory into this business machine. Maybe I should say business monster because it starts to feel that way. Like, you know, it's dominating my life. But I just started to reduce down some of what I was noticing, started putting it into practice, started seeing the results. And then you know how it is when you spend some time with concepts or ideas or principles, they just start to seem so dead obvious to you. And you're like, first of all, what took me so long, right? Where, where have I been? I could have made things easier on myself a lot sooner. But also I'm looking around, I'm seeing all these other talented freelancers and consultants who are doing things the hard way. And I started thinking, okay, better results, less effort, better results, less effort. And I started writing more and teaching more of this stuff in 2015, 2016, 2017. In 2018, I rolled out a coaching program where I started talking about the four P's of six-figure freelancing, positioning, packaging, pricing, and pipeline. I have since added a couple of others because I'm like, sure enough, psychology, super important. And sure enough, freelancers and consultants who improvise on their processes less and actually work from very well-defined and streamlined processes, that's a huge lever. So all that kind of brought me up to where I am now, which is like, listen, there are certain, I call them shareable advantages, principles, beliefs, habits, levers that are available to those of us who sell creativity. Mm -hmm. And if you use these advantages, you will get better results with less effort. And if they're available to you, why wouldn't you use them? Why, why keep doing things the hard way, right? There's a boulder in the ground. You need to get it out. Why not use a fulcrum and a lever, like a force multiplier or you know, a tool that gives you a mechanical advantage? So all of my thinking really started to gel around 2019. And then over the last three years, it's really just been process of trial and error with me figuring out the best way to deliver some of these concepts and to actually not just transfer the knowledge like a classic teacher, but to help people establish habits at the same time, right? So that's kind of where I am now with Freelance Cake. I think you you're talking about the concept of of leverage and, and moving boulders and also within specialization for freelancers, learning how to like prune down their offerings just to like what the critical essential is that they that not only they enjoy doing, but they get value out of doing, they can help their clients the most doing and then just focusing on becoming like the best at doing that specific job. It like allows them to raise their their freelancing rates, they they make more money, they attract more of similar similar clients. I think all of that is made possible maybe because of like the most underrated leverage of all time. 
that's the power of saying no. I'm no, I'm not <laughs> going to take you on as a client because you're not within my specialty. No, I'm not right. going to write a blog post on this topic or create a book on this topic because there's not enough interest in it. Even though I may be personally interested, I know my audience isn't interested. So I'm not going to do that. Or no, I'm not going to go to this conference and give a talk because I know the most value for my my business is going to come from creating videos or, or writing blog post content. It kind of sounds like the the power of no here is almost like the the secret weapon of being able to really dig into something and and specialize. Like, do you do you see that with your business or, or your clients that you work with? Oh, absolutely. And going back to what we talked about earlier with being multi passionate and having a lot of curiosity, saying no can feel like cutting off your arm. Because if you desire fresh, creative and intellectual challenges, then this new project is going to be more exciting to you than this old offer that you know you could deliver in your sleep. And yet, if you want to build a reputation and become a recognized authority, you need to have those offers that you can deliver like clockwork, the client is thrilled with the outcome and the value, right? So I think I've started calling it disciplined simplicity. Because just saying just calling it simplicity is like, no, but this is like very purposeful. And I don't know if there's a a law in thermodynamics or whatever. It's not like the law of entropy. It's like something about things always like skewing toward complexity. But that has been my experience as a, an entrepreneur is that anytime you get a business off the ground, it's like it immediately starts. It's like this weird sort of fractal thing that happens where it gets like more and more complex, right? And so at a certain point, though, you have to take a critical eye to your business and say, I have to start pruning. I have to be disciplined in my simplicity. And Going back to the psychology P and the six P's, I have to address the root cause of saying yes so often, and that is scarcity mindset. I keep saying yes because I'm worried if I say no, then I'll come up empty handed and a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. So, you know, I know how to do this project. I may not be excited about it. I'm going to say yes because I think I need the money. And I'm not going to hold out for a better project that would truly build the business, right? So we're constantly wrangling our mindsets. And if we don't, we'll keep saying yes. And if we keep saying yes, that's when we end up overextended, spread too thin and burned out. Totally. If some listeners of the show, they're they're already full-time freelancers or they moonlight as freelancers to help pay their bills as they get their info product business going. What recommendations do you have for these freelancers who are looking to not only make more money, but eventually make the switch to being full-time content creators? So the wonderful thing about being a freelancer or really any service provider is all day long, every day, you're actually kind of prototyping your products. I am not the first person to say this. I can't remember who taught it to me, but we can turn around and sell our sawdust right? A client pays you to do something, make something. And then you're going to perhaps create process, strategy, 
you may need to create tools, cheat sheets, templates, checklists, whatever. You're going to accumulate knowledge and expertise. I mentioned that a breakthrough for me back in 2015 and 2016 was that idea of selling strategy as a standalone offer. Well, earlier this year, I launched a program called, you guessed it, How to Sell Strategy, right? Because I realized, oh, wait, I've sold nine different flavors of strategy at this point. I could certainly teach other freelancers how to do the same. It was my best launch ever. And so it was like, what was I doing? I was just selling my sawdust, right? But the challenge, if you're a freelancer, consultant, digital agency, founder, the challenge anytime you start to create digital products is that you're starting a new business and it has a different business model because you only get the leverage with products if you achieve the scale. You really only achieve the scale if you build an audience. You only build an audience if you find out how to get attention. And so even just like the work you spend your time doing is just very different with a product business because it's going to involve a lot of content marketing, right? Whereas if you have maybe a smaller digital agency over here, you don't actually need tons of clients. If you're a freelancer over here, you don't need a hundred clients, 10 at a time, maybe a lot. So that paradigm shift, oh, I'm actually trying to grow two businesses at the same time, really caught me by surprise because I was really good at making money on the service side. But as soon as I started prioritizing the product side, can you guess what freelance income did? <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, wait, like I thought I was good at making money. And now I'm making a lot less money on the service side. And meanwhile, the product side hasn't really picked up. So the first piece of advice I would give freelancers is expect that it's a different business model. You may, depending on your background, be starting from zero. So you will be as new to selling products and as prone to make rookie mistakes as you once were with freelancing, great, you've now figured out how to be a well-paid freelancer, well-paid consultant, but you're going to carry the same blind spots that anybody else would into the product business. Now, because I do so much coaching, I talk about three paths to diversified income with freelancers, value-based pricing, you know, scaling up from a very good freelancer into a lean agency, micro agency, or digital products. And it's just amazing to me that you have very accomplished people in terms of what they've done in their service business, who, again, almost without exception, when they start building things on the product side, do it the wrong way. And they make the exact same mistakes that I made, right? Like, I'm going to build it and then hope they come. Instead of, we talked about small bets, right? From anti-fragile. Like, no, like you should start with your content marketing and then based on what people really want to learn about from you, that can grow into a product over time, right? So that paradigm shift is a big gotcha for freelancers. On the service side, it really is about the first four Ps. Like, 
that's where most freelancers lack leverage is they they're not clearly differentiated they've never truly built out a really compelling value proposition they they don't have like a precise enough understanding of niche which is both whom you serve what you do for them and how you deliver it so the who what how all three of those dimensions need to be there in order for you to have really strong positioning. But once you've got it, if you then combine that with some of the projects that have historically paid you the best, now you may actually be kind of making a new category. One of my, she is a student right now in a course that I'm creating live with my students. It's called Morning Marketing Habit. But she works with airlines to optimize flight crews. Have you heard of that specialization ever? No, never. I didn't even know that was a thing. Me either. And she was telling me yesterday, she's like, I'm pretty sure, I think I may be the only one. But she had been in the industry for 20 years. And anyway, as you really dial in your positioning, you match that up with some juicy offers. You have smart pricing. And then if you actually can figure out predictable prospecting process, marketing plan, morning marketing habit, you start to feel this lift, this tailwind, right? And so freelancers who are frustrated, consultants who are frustrated with what they're earning, it's going to go back to the best levers you have in front of you right now, which are positioning, your packaging or juicy offers pipeline and your pricing. That's always where I start because if we start there, you'll start selling your best ever, biggest ever projects. And with a little bit more money, then you can start to get a little bit more help, right? But I think I was all over the place. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if I even <laughs> answered your question. You know, it's it's interesting. You're effectively with the positioning element, you're talking a lot about product market fit, you know, making sure you're bringing a product, whether whether it's like a sellable product, like an info product or a service, you're, whatever that product is, you're trying to solve a very specific problem. But one thing that can be really tough, especially for developers, because this, this community has a lot of developers in, is this concept of like, it takes time to find product market fit. I was, I was having this conversation with a listener over email. He was just asking me like, hey, what's like the like the rule of thumb or the industry standard that it takes to find product market fit. He's like, as I build software for a living and I could build these mini apps over a weekend and deploy them and they're, they're out live. And it's like, well, I mean, granted, it's, it's apples to oranges because he's not necessarily making a ton of money off of these, these little side projects they launches. But the point is that in a weekend, he could get a proof of, proof of concept online mm-hmm. and, and running if he's just focusing strictly on, on the programming. But if you want to build like a larger, more successful business, if you want to build that, build that audience, you're going to have to find product market fit. And I told him like, listen, like you can't compare what you're doing in the programming world to what you're doing over here in the product world, because mm-hmm. programming, it's just you and you can disappear mm-hmm. in a hole and you can iterate really quickly and come out with something in the product world. It's a little different. And in some cases, it can take you anywhere from six to 18 months to find product market fit. And I, mm-hmm. I told him like, this is one of the reasons why it is so popular to actually acquire existing businesses, whether that's uh, an existing like product as a service company, whether it's an existing SaaS company, existing info product company, it's because 
the current owners, they put in all the work to spin up this existing flywheel of not only building the product, because honestly, the product is most of the time the easy part. The hard part is like actually making sure it's tuned properly. The marketing is tuned properly. You have the right channels to acquire acquire mm-hmm. customers for it. So the current owners, they've spent all of that time. They've spent that six to 18 months actually honing in on that. And then they, when they go and sell it, they're able to get a premium for it because they've taken all the all the initial risk. They've taken the risk of, hey, this could all go to zero at any moment. It was literally worth nothing when I started. Now it's making X dollars per month or, or per year, you know? So that's why, that's kind of the incentive of why it's nice to be that early entrepreneur because mm-hmm. you get all of the upside. But of course, you also get all of the downside if it, if it goes nowhere. If you're a high income freelancer, like a, a six figure freelancer, and you find like an info product business that is similar to whatever your current offering is, it may be worth it to just kind of acquire that that existing company and bring it into you because you're not starting from square one. And even mm-hmm. if you're a brand new info product business owner, like just make small tweaks at a time. Don't do overhauling changes. Just do small tweaks to learn here and there. Don't blow the business up. You're not gonna blow it up overnight if you're making you're making small tweaks. I think that's a great a great way to kind of shortcut the process, but of course it requires that you have the capital to purchase that company in the first place. I think that approach makes a lot of sense, especially if that product or the business comes with some kind of audience asset, right? And that could be a Facebook group. I have known freelancers to buy Facebook groups, maybe that have a companion product. Obviously, you can buy a content business where there's traffic built in on the website. You can buy a business that, you know, it's a course business, but there's an email list. Because, and we kind of talked about this earlier, like with attention, you get audience. With audience, you get leverage. So if you can buy an audience asset, then great. Not only can you continue to sell the existing product, to that audience. But any new products you want to create, it's pretty inexpensive and usually not super risky to test them with the audience, right? And that's why, you know, I'm just a huge fan of pre-sales. So maybe that's the advice for freelancers who don't have the budget to go buy an existing company, product company, content company, if you can't get people to show up to a free workshop, why would they buy the premium course? Right? And if you can't get engagement on a post that teaches something that you would share in the workshop, what makes you think you could get people to show up to the workshop, right? And so I think, again, going back to that idea of small bets, it's really just like putting your ideas out there I think we're like, I have been surprised at what products people in my audience have gotten most excited about. And, you know, I have my hunches. I've been freelancing a long time. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be super valuable for people, right? But I'm not joking when I said that, like, the morning marketing habit course that I'm working on right now, I mentioned this idea of a morning marketing habit offhandedly in several email newsletters, I send out a weekly email newsletter. And people kept on being like, that idea is genius. I'm like, it's not genius. It's common sense. It's like working out. 
If you want to ensure that you work out, do it first thing in the morning. If you know you have a really bad habit of procrastinating with your marketing, there's an obvious solution. Do it first. Right now, obviously, we don't work out or we don't market for a variety of reasons. So it's not as simple as just saying, you know, you have to get into some of the psychology. But we have a less risky path for testing ideas in the market. And it is with content first, wherever you like to show up, Instagram, TikTok, I'm on LinkedIn a lot, Twitter a little bit. But I could put out ideas and just see how people respond to them. But if you want to build a product business, you have to find out what people want. And then you have to give them more of that. And to your point, it may take you six to 18 months to figure out what it is that people want more of. And then it may take even longer for you to figure out the the format or the delivery mechanism, right? Is it a podcast, but you're now getting sponsorship dollars. So that's kind of your product, right? Is it a course? Is it a download? Is it 15 checklists? The thing that seems so obvious to you that you can't imagine that someone would want to pay you for this may actually be your best first product, right? One of the ones... I think that's so great. Well, I mean, it just, it again, you... We have blind spots coming into a business, but then as we accumulate expertise, we develop new blind spots. We forget what it was like to know nothing. And so I'm not joking that like one of my most, it's part of a product. It's not a freestanding product, but it is a complete freelance project checklist. And people love this thing. And I think it took me 15 minutes to make. Oh man. And I just... Ask myself the question, okay, I've been doing this 13 years now. When I get a brand new freelance client, someone I've never worked with before, what do I do from beginning to end? Like from the very first time they connect with me and I'm like, hey, let's hop on a quick discovery call all the way to I've delivered the product, work product, whatever it is, the project, final files, everything. I'm like, what are all the steps. And it seems so obvious to me now that like, hey, in Dropbox, I need to create a folder with the same structure of subfolders I always use and duplicate it, name it after the client, like that kind of stuff. Because you want to stay organized and it's easier for future you if you use the same naming convention all the time, right? Anyway, I was just surprised at how passionate people were about this dinky little tool that didn't have a whole lot of value to me because now it's all automatic. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people who are going to listen to this who are like, I don't even know what a product should be. And it's like, yeah, but if you started writing more and putting out more content, just follow people's enthusiasm and then give them more of what they want. You can How much pro- did you sell that checklist for? So I sold that as a part of, I call it freelance business toolkit. I had a coaching client. Let me back up for just a second. Pay attention to what wants to happen. If there's like one principle that I think people creating info products should keep very close, it's 
pay attention to what wants to happen. Observe, right? I had one coaching client who said in an email, I really just want to know how you manage a project beginning to end. And he was brand new to freelancing. And so it made sense that he would ask that. But there was that part of me that was like, well, don't you already know? Like, it's easy. First things first. You know what I mean? Like, have a project brief template that you can duplicate. And then you take all the info from their emails and from your conversations and you put it into a project brief so that you have a single source of truth for the project, right? Blah, blah, blah. But you asked, like, how much did I price it at? $49. And I would, I mean, half the time I would give it to people for free because I'm like, you really need this. But it was bundled together with 10 or 12 other little tools. And so I'm like, yeah. And honestly, I wanted it to be worth like 100 times what people paid. Sure. And that was the response I got. People were like, any one thing in this little bundle is worth 10x what I paid for the whole thing. And so the whole thing combined is worth 100x, right? But these are things that I already had gathering dust in Google Drive folders and Dropbox folders and all over the place, right? So a lot of people listening, they already have that sawdust. They could package it up and resell it once you know that there's demand. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. And it's actually really timely for me to hear that because I yesterday I sent out an email. I was like, what's what's next for Info Product Mastery? The, The episode you and I are recording now is episode 26. And I was like, Episode 25, like that's that's like a real milestone for me, right? Like I'm like at this point where I've created episodes, I've gotten some some really good feedback from from people. And now I'm starting to think like what's what's next? Like, am I creating a course? Am I creating a community? Am I creating this like accelerator program where I bring in people who already are making a few thousand dollars a month in info products and you know I'm taking a, a bit of equity from them? such that I can like work with them and like 10x their their business like what what is it that I'm doing I like sent out this email and and got some feedback on it but when you were talking about the the checklist it kind of clicked to me that some of my sawdust is that I've authored over 500 blog posts and and tutorials when I ran Pymage search and I have all these templates that I've put together and best practices that I use internally with my directory naming structure the order mm. in which I Got like I write code first, and then I gather screenshots and results, and I store that in a text file. And I have this Google Doc I clone with a special browser plugin that formats code snippets correctly. So, you know, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, Love that's, it. that's that's the sawdust right there. Yeah, and it's again we devalue things that we have through familiarity with them. That's mm-hmm. true of relationships, and it's also true of just stuff that we've made, right? And you were talking earlier about continuing to br- like bring small enhancements and refinements to a product over time. That's really, really smart. But my tendency is to just create new stuff all the time. I'm just like, I love creating new stuff. I'm a creator. Isn't this what we do? Right. But a lot of the most successful multi-six-figure, multi-seven-figure creators that I know and I use creators just as an umbrella term for people who have info products, right? If you're packaging up what you know as an info product, that kind of makes you a creator these days. But a lot of the most successful people that I know 
going back to what we were talking about with freelancers and consultants, not having 20 different services or offers. Well, the same is true of a lot of creators is they have a handful, maybe one flagship program, offer, course, book, whatever it may be, workshop, and, you know, cohort-based course, right? And they launch it four times a year or three times a year or two times a year, and they just keep refining it, iterating it, improving it. And so, though I don't think there's one right path, you'll see people, like I had this, I have this friend who, he was selling $9 and $19 Python tutorials. Mm-hmm. And not Python the snake, FYI. <laughs> Python the coding language. <laughs> Just so you know, there actually have another friend who has a niche website for people who own snakes. That's what's funny. <laughs> that, that's how wide, whether it's a real Python or the coding language, there's room for you here, right? But the people who seem to simplify but just delivering more and more and more value with one product. Those are the people who just seem to not only win in terms of meeting income targets, but also win in terms of lifestyle design. So I would always recommend, like, take a a survey of what you already have in your Google Drive folders, your Dropbox folders, and just see if there's stuff sitting there that you think, you know, if I clean that up a little bit, someone might pay 50 bucks, 500 bucks, 5,000 bucks for that. That's awesome. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up the show. Thanks so much for for being here, Austin. If a listener wants to chat or connect with you, what's the best place to reach you at? Find me on LinkedIn, Austin L. Church, or find me on Twitter, same handle. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Austin, for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, send me an email at questions at infoproductmastery.com. If you enjoy this episode, please leave a five-star review in whatever podcatcher app you use, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Not only do these reviews help motivate me to create new episodes, but they also help other developers, educators, and entrepreneurs find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.